All right, Matthew chapter 5, uh, the life of Christ. You know, Jesus started, uh, really we're going to start the, over these next three weeks, even though it's a part of the bigger series on the life of Christ. These next three weeks, are, are we're focusing and honing on the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew chapter 5 is really where we have the beginning of Jesus' teaching. In, it's almost like an amphitheater up on, um, up on the mountain. Uh, crowds of people, religious people, hyper-religious people, not-so-religious people, and everything in between. Um, it, it's fitting to say that at this time, God's people, the Israelites, the Jews, were, were really in a, uh, in a hard place. Here they were in Canaan, in the Promised Land, in Israel, and yet uh, very, uh, very much set aside culturally. Um, culture had, you could say, had, had kind of gone on and there's a religious aspect to it, but, but even the culture was, was fractured. Uh, you had, as I mentioned, the, the hyper-religious people and the not-so-religious people. Uh, you, had, you had those who, who really stuck to and claimed to this, this, this ideal of, of, of uh, Jerusalem and Israel and what it was, and then some it, it were, had become true truly a, uh, a, a pagan-filled place. Namely, uh, here's God's peop- here were God's people in, in God's nation and country, in God's land, and it was occupied by the Roman, the Roman uh, army. Uh, it, the, this foreign uh, power had come in, and so here were God's people, and yet they were uh, in a hard place uh, culturally in society, um, when it came to their relationship with God. You think this is, when Jesus starts his ministry, there had truly been 400 years of silence where God was, was distant, where prophets didn't speak, God, prophets didn't hear from God. And so there's this, this setting where, where Jesus starts his ministry, begins his ministry, and people are gathering and they're pressing in to hear what he has to say. And this is truly a, a time when, when God's people were in flux. There, was a lot, there were a lot of questions, these strained relationships, and there was a huge weight on them. So the Messiah, Jesus, starts to teach. And people press in a little closer. They perk up their ears. And what does Jesus say in Matthew 5? Look at verse 17. We're going to skip over the first section and we're going to start at verse 17. We'll come back to verses uh, 3, 4, and 5 in a bit. But look at what Jesus said. He said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fill them. Here they were under the oppression of a foreign government. Here they were under the, impre- uh, the oppression of the religious zealots and the religious uh, um, uh, people of the day, wanting a Messiah to come and set them free. And here Jesus comes in and says, you know what? You've been expecting this physical ruler to come in, but it's not going to quite happen the way you thought. And he says, I haven't come to abolish the law, I've come to fulfill it. In fact, I've come to amp it up. And they're going, huh? What? I thought you came to set us free from these religious requirements. And he goes on, verse 20. 
He says, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses, not just equals, but surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And, and they're scratching their head. They're bewildered because they're look, they've been, for generations, they've been looking at these, these Pharisees and Sadducees and zealots and going, oh my goodness, they are close to God. And how do we get there? How do we do this? How do we accomplish what they've... And now Jesus has come on the scene as the Messiah, as the one who's going to make everything right, and he's making it harder. He's making it more difficult. These guys were perfect. These guys were the gold standard. And Jesus says, you know what? You don't just have to get there. You have to go beyond there. You see, this was kind of the, the picture that people had in their minds. You do the right thing. You, you, you make the right decisions. You start to please God and you get closer to God. You know, these, these religious people, they, they kept the Sabbath and they, you know, they, they, they didn't commit adultery and they, you know, they, they just got better and better and they got closer and closer to God. And I got up here in the first service and I went, oh my goodness, I'm afraid of heights. I'm like, oh! You know, it, does, it says, do not stand on top step for a reason. I got thinking, maybe I'll stand on the top step, but now that I'm up here, it's, it's not going to happen. <laughs> but this is what people thought of and people saw when, when they saw the religious people, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, those who had that, that next level relationship with God. And they thought that people in this place had arrived and that if they did the wrong things, they were down here. And these were the commoners. And these were the people who were all uh, struggling with sin. But those people were, were somehow in with God like this. And here Jesus says, you know what? That's not the gold standard. That isn't utopia when it comes to relationship with me. In fact... I'm here to say that unless you go beyond there, this, you're not going to get into the kingdom of heaven. The standard, you think about this, this gets me, you know, eight feet in the air, but it's nothing compared to the ceiling even of this church. And this, this church is 25, 30 feet tall. You're going to go, but that's not very tall. You're right. But what's the standard for heaven? It, you know, it's, it's not just the top of the ladder. It's not just the top of the building. It's not just the Empire State Building. It's, it's past the moon. Relatively speaking, this is what Jesus is exposing here. He's saying, you know what? I have come to fulfill the law. And I'm here to tell you that unless your righteousness goes far beyond that of the religious rulers, you don't have a place in the kingdom. Jesus was, in essence, saying, you know what, you can't get there from here. No amount of striving, no amount of your own righteousness can get you where you need to go. You can't get there from here. Paul reiterated that in, in Romans chapter 3. He said, what? For all have sinned and done what? Fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us has fallen short of God's righteous requirement. We can't get there on our own. You know, I have a bottle of water here and it's, it's sealed and I can crack the seal open and I can take a drink. 
It's pure water, it's, it's, it's water. Now, let me ask you, how much rat poisoning do I need to put in here to contaminate it? How much do I, you know, half, you know, quarter, maybe, you know, how much? I tell you, you put any rat poison in there, I'm not taking a drink. Even one granule, one speck of one granule, I don't know if it'll hurt me or not, but I'm not taking a drink. How much dirt do you need to put in here in order to make it impure? I think even as it is, you look on the the labels and it says what? 99.999% pure. I think they're just kind of, you know, doing the legalese there and going, you know, we can't just, you know, say 100% pure. And that's Jesus' point. Is even 0.0000001% is still not entirely pure. And it doesn't matter what percentage of 100% is missing. If it's missing even the smallest fraction, it's still incomplete and it's therefore impure and it's sinful. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all sinful. Look at Romans 7. Paul goes on. He talks about this a lot. And this is one of those... uh, you know, Bible readings that you get into and you just kind of gloss over and glaze over, but stick with me because there's a purpose. Get this, he says in verse 14 of Romans 7, he says, we know the law is spiritual. We're going to be going through a lot of scripture, so, so hang with me. We know that the law is spiritual, and Paul says here, I am unspiritual. You ever felt that way? Sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate to do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. You ever been there? I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living within me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I also see another law at work in me. Waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. And he goes on to say, what a wretched man I am who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death. One other version, just hold on to that, that verse up there. One, another version says, who will free me from this body of death? Some theologians have speculated that what Paul, the image that Paul had in his mind, is, it's, we can't confirm this, but, but some theologians uh, assume that what Paul had in mind was a, an ancient form of the death penalty. Think of it this way, if you had committed murder, they would actually take the dead body of the victim and strap it, tie it onto your back. And as that body would begin to decompose, your body would uh, 
be succumb and be overcome by all of the diseases and in fact begin to, to, uh, to die. And you would, you would basically die by the death of, of the, the infection and all that, that stuff that was going on. So as Paul is speaking, like I said, some theologians speculate that this is what he had in his mind when he, he talked about sin holding us captive and holding us prisoner as this body of death is strapped to us and is slowly killing us. Paul is saying, who will free me from this? Who will set me free from this place where I can't get out of on my own? I'm despicable, I'm loathsome, detestable, vile and shameful and unworthy. I can't get out of this on my own, but thankfully Paul doesn't leave it there. He says in verse 25, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. You see, I can't do this by myself. I can't get out of this by myself. I cannot good myself out of this. I can't grunt it out. I can't think myself out of this body of death. It's only through Christ. And if you're taking notes, if, you're, if you have your bulletin, just pull out a pen. And I want you to write down a couple of things. First is this. It's not about what I do. It's not about what I do. It is about what Christ has done. Let me say that again. It's not about what I do. It's about what Christ has done. And that's what Paul is saying. It's only through Jesus Christ. You know, we have this perception in Christianity. We have this perception when we come to faith in Christ. And let me, let me draw it here. We have this idea that if we simply do enough good things and check off enough boxes, that will somehow put a smile on God's face. I've, driven, I've drawn this before. You notice how artistically inclined I am. I'm not the artistic one in our family. That would be Dana, and she does beautiful artwork, and I do stick figures. But this is what we feel like. We feel like if we do enough good things and we make enough good choices, if we take that step up in our spirituality, if we, if we um, uh, act according to the law, we somehow put a smile on God's face. And as a result of God being pleased, he says, well done, good and faithful servant, step into my kingdom. And we get this prize or this present of eternal life. Isn't this the way we think? We check off the boxes. We do enough right things. We, we obey the thou shalt nots. And we do the thou shalts. Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, who is my neighbor? Uh, you know, you get onto that whole thing. If we check off enough boxes, we put a smile on God's face, and we get the prize. How often do we live our lives like that? And yet, let me tell you what the picture truly looks like because this is not the picture that God has set. What the picture is truly, and Paul says this, who will free me from this body of death only through Jesus Christ? 
It's only through Jesus Christ that we have access to eternal life in the presence of God. That's the only way that sin is paid for. That's the only way that we have a right relationship with God. It's the only way that we can enter into an eternity with him. It's the only way, only through Christ Jesus. And you say, well, what about the works? What about God being pleased? What about that? Let me tell you, it's a byproduct of what Christ has done in our lives as a result, and Paul says this, as a result, we want to please God. As a result, he gives us the the power through his Holy Spirit to live our lives that are pleasing and purposeful, that put a smile on his face. But that's not the way we enter in to the kingdom of God. It's only through the blood of Jesus Christ. We're set free through Christ. Let me put it this way. I really believe that what Jesus was exposing on the Sermon on the Mount was three things, the three things that we need to keep um, in the forefront of our minds. And the first one is this, that there is an absolute necessity for new birth. There's an absolute necessity to be born again. Before you get hung up on that terminology, let me point you to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We need to be reborn. You might recall the, the, the interaction with Jesus and Nicodemus in John chapter 3 where, where Jesus says, you must be born again. And, and, and Nicodemus says, what do you mean be born again? I was born, how do I go back into my mother's womb and be born again? And, and Paul exposes it and explains it. And what happens in this new birth in Ephesians chapter 2? He says, as for you, you are dead in your transgressions and sin. You had a death sentence placed on you, much like the body of death encapsulating you. In, in, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the rulers of the kingdom of this air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are, are disobedient. He says, all of us, not just some of us, all of us, also lived among them at one time, gratifying the, the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. And then he goes on to say, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, what did he do? He made us alive. He rebirthed us, made us alive with Christ. Even when we're dead in our transgressions and sin, it is by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up. Notice the imagery, the same imagery of Jesus being crucified, being buried and raised to new life. Paul's picking up on this and he's saying, you are raised with Christ and he seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ. He goes on to say it's by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not of yourselves it is the gift of God not by works so no one can boast. Dead in our transgressions and sin, but we've been reborn. We've been raised to life through who and by who? Through Christ. By Christ Jesus. First truth, the absolute necessity of new birth, of being born again. Second truth is that Jesus Christ is our only hope. Jesus Christ is our only hope. Look over at Romans chapter 8. And in Romans chapter 8, 
Paul says this, therefore there is now what? No condemnation. No condemnation for those who climb the ladder. There's no condemnation for those who hit the top rung just like the the Pharisees did, right? Now, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because through Jesus Christ, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 5 says, God made Christ to be sin for us, so that what? So we might become the righteousness of God. There was an exchange that took place. Christ took on sin and became sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God. The absolute necessity of Jesus Christ. And it behooves me to to think of church after church after church, not only in our Western culture, but around the world, who said, you know what? Christ is just another person. And they don't hold to the, the truth that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved. Jesus is our only hope. Jesus is the only way that we can be righteous and be found righteous in God's eyes. You see, we try to do so many things. We try to get there on our own. But it's only through Jesus Christ. It's only through Him. You know, we kind of laugh at it and we go, well, yeah, of course. But what's our culture? Even in our church, what do we do? We, uh, we kind of make those right decisions. We, we're, we're humble. We're not prideful, right? Hey, we're, we're generous. Awesome. You know, I, I kind of got this picture in my mind. You ever played that game, um, Red Light, Green Light, when you're a kid? It's like Red Light, Green Light. And for those of you who don't know, it'd be like y'all are at the back and I'm at the front. I turn around and I say, Green Light, and you start to run. And then I say, Red Light, and I turn around. And if you're moving and I see you, you go back to the start. Isn't it almost like that in our relationship with God? And we think that, hey, we're doing some great things. We, you know, we haven't lied, cheated, or stealed, or look at porn. So we, you know, we get up to the next level. And oh man, I had a, a rough day. That, you know, and so we're back down, and then we're back up, and then you know, you know, God points the finger at us, so we're back down. And and hey, hey, we we gave an extra little bit in the offering, so we're up there, and and man, we served. And we were greeters at the front door, and and uh, you know, we weren't prideful. And and we didn't steal anything, and then, and then, you know, we had an argument with our wife or our, our husband, and, and, you know, it's just this, we're, we're, I hate to say, but we're playing this game. It's just depressing. And you're sitting there, and you're going, how do I get there? How do I do this? How do I, you know, and, and yet we embrace it. That, that some way it's our checking boxes that put a smile on God's face and get us into the kingdom of God. Like, can we just lose that? And I, I get it because, you know, I can just hear my parents, I can hear other people who've, who've tried to pour into my life over the years and go, well, then what do we do? Do we just, you know, throw righteousness and throw godly living out the door and stuff? No, 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 no. 
Because when, when Christ in us, the hope of glory changes us, transforms us, pays the price for sin, and we allow that to happen, and it, it entirely becomes us, we want to please God. We want to do what he, he wants us to do. We want to live that life. Oh, Paul was struggling with it. And, and if you're sitting here going, well, I don't ever struggle with that, then man, we got to get a, you know, some sort of apostolic book from you. Because, man, you got it together. Paul didn't have it together, and you got to, you know, write something. Come on, you know, I'm joking, but we're all there. And, you know, Paul says, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And he goes on to, you know, it's just this conundrum because he says, well, then do we go on sinning more just so grace will abound more? No, 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 let's not do that. I'm not going over there. That's, that's ridiculous. But can we stop playing this game? Can we stop just trying to impress one another and, and kind of put it under this, this religious covering of trying to please God? We're broken people. We're messed up people. We're sinful people. God knows that. Why don't we just admit it? Right? Now, does that mean we can't live a righteous life? Does that mean we can't please God? No, it, it means we can but it means we're struggling, it means we're going to struggle, and it means we constantly have to fall at the feet of Jesus and rely on His grace and His blood that's paid the price for our sin. You know, I, I was speaking at a, at a group the last few weeks, and it was three weeks ago when I started, and I, um, once again, I took a, a page off of a sermon I've preached here one time, and I just talked about it was last fall where I talked about love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And I was just sharing how the number one thing that people in our community need to know is that God loves them. And there was a gentleman there who, you could just tell it was something that he wasn't used to hearing. There were other things that needed to be done. There were other things, other check boxes. And just all with respect, we kind of had a conversation back and forth and and he just couldn't wrap his mind around the fact that in some way, telling people that God loves them and sent his son wasn't enough. Can we get back to the fact that God loves us so much that he sent his son? Can we just embrace that? And I, I don't say that to say ignore other th- and ignore the rest of the equation and ignore you know, walking out and living our lives in step with the Spirit. Paul, I tell you, more than anyone talks about that. He goes, we can live a victorious life. We can live a life that, that's not uh, just full of sin. We can rise above that, but it's not in our own strength. It's not in our own ability. We constantly have to rely on the, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Yes, God wants us to have victory. Yes, he's going to empower us to, to have victory, but it's not what we do. It's what Christ has done. So if you're a, a mom or a dad, if, if you're a, a college student or a high school student or you're, you're retired, if, if, if you got this, this down and, and man, you're just clipping along, you're, you're on a good pace and your relationship with God in life is good, blessings on you. But there's more. 
There's more, and you need to also know that, that it's not about you. It's about Christ in you. But I'd venture to say there are a lot of people here that, that you're, not, you're not feeling like you're even on bottom rung. Like, if, if I could illustrate where you feel like you're at, like you're down for the count. You really are. But let me tell you that in some ways that, that's not a bad thing. There's a story um, where Jesus was at uh, Simon the, the Pharisee's house and a, a woman came up behind him and, and poured the oil and the, the perfume on his feet. And uh, the Pharisee really got mad at Jesus. You know, why would you let someone like this do this to you? And, and you, you all remember the story. What did Jesus say? She gave much. Why? Because she'd been forgiven much. And I think sometimes when we get to that point where we are just down and out, and we're, we're tapped out, um, that's where we are at the point where it's most evident that God comes in and lifts us up. You know, because before then, it, it's a lot of us. It's a lot of what we do. It's a lot of what, what we're capable of doing. And, and I grew up in the church, and there's a whole lot of me in, in that. And it's an ongoing process of laying that down and setting that aside and saying, God, I need you to do this in my life. I want you to bow your heads, close your eyes. And uh, worship team, why don't you come up and join me up here? And I know we've gone over time, but I really believe it's just something that the Lord has had us to talk about today. And here's what I want us to, to do. I really believe it's a, a recommitment and a rededication of our lives to the Lord. For some here, it might be a first-time commitment. And when I say that, it's a, a, a surrendering of our lives to Him, of saying, you know what, Lord, I'm, I'm done with climbing the ladder to put a smile on your face. I need to fall at your feet and receive the free gift of salvation. And why I say a rededication for those of us who've been walking with the Lord is it's it's tapping out and surrendering and saying, Lord, I'm, I want to set aside the things that are of me and I want to, I want to fall on uh, the cross of Jesus Christ again. I want to fall on your grace. And so, Lord, I receive that right now. I rededicate my life to you. I, I resurrender my life to you. And I want you to come in and I want you to make me. I want you to um, qualify me. I don't want to qualify myself. I don't want to check off the boxes just to look good. I want you to come in and I want you to say you're a child of mine. I've paid the price for your sin, Darren. And you're mine. You're my child. So if that's you today, would you do that? Would you just surrender your life again to Him? Say, Lord, more of you, less of me. And Lord, may my life flow out of the... the, the gratitude I have for what you've done. And then, as I mentioned, there's probably some here this morning, you've never surrendered your life to him. And in some way, you're, you're a good person. You're doing some wonderful things. 
But there's always that, been that question, why do, why, if I'm a good person, and why if I'm doing these good things, why is it every, every once in a while just these, these things creep up that are such a surprise and so out of character? Well, it's an evidence of the, the sin nature within each of us. I believe the Lord is inviting you to surrender your life and to receive the free gift that He's given to you of His Son, Jesus. And you can do that just by saying, Lord, I confess my sins to you. I confess that I can't do it on my own and I need you to come in, change my life, set me free so that I can live a life that is pleasing to you and a life that, that I'm sure of my salvation, I'm sure of, of my eternity with you. So Lord, come in, do a work in our lives. I want to say how much we love you, Lord. So encourage us with this, Lord. Encourage our hearts. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm inviting you to stand. We're going to just take a moment to worship. And uh, if our altar team come down to the front, and if, if they can provide some ministry for you in any way, uh, just step out from where you're at, and they'd love to pray with you. Whatever's going on in your life, whatever you feel the Holy Spirit is speaking to you about, just receive prayer, receive ministry. Some wonderful people would love to stand with you in faith, knowing that God's got a word for you today and wants to encourage you with that. Here it is. Live it out. It's not what you do. It's what Christ has done. Amen? Amen. God bless you.